Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters Podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. My brother Kevin and I wish all of you a very happy Halloween. And may your little feet in your household collect oodles and oodles of bags of candy. (laughs) Well, 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 my friends. It seems we have a double-barrel creep show in store for you today. Beginning with Kevin's Cryptids in the News and History segment, which is going to make your hair stand on end. And followed by a witness saying that he has seen a werewolf in Arkansas. Maybe it was his mother-in-law at a hundred (laughs) yards. Who's to say? For those of you who don't know me, I am W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Terror in the Woods, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, available at Amazon in paperback, ebook, and Kindle. With volumes 6, 5, 4, and 3, and soon, too, in audiobook at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And, of course, the others will be following in suit as time permits. And now, let's crank it up a notch, shall we? And get this Halloween show on the road with my brother, Kevin. Brother, how are you today? I'll get to you, my fine critique. (laughs) And your little dog, too. (laughs) I'll tell you, man. When I first saw that thing uh, uh, so many years ago, I can't recall, that freaking Wicked Witch really creeped me out, man. Oh, she's creepy. Oh, my. If she didn't creep you out, the flying monkey sure did. Oh, my good, What a... <laughs> yeah. When you're a little guy and you were sitting down in the living room with the TV set in front of you and she came out with that black pointy hat and extending that scraggly looking finger with the green face. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Good old Margaret Hamilton. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff. I love it, man. So, Good uh stuff. I know that you have something lined up here today that's uh rather interesting, shall we say? Yes, yes. We're going to talk about the witch craze that is uh, most famously associated with the Salem witch trials. Oh, boy. But uh, we're going to talk about some more witch craze stuff also to set the stage. Okay, excellent. (laughs) Yeah, and I I wanted to open up with, uh, you know, the Wicked Witch of the West from, uh, you know, the great Wizard of Oz, uh, because that's the image that I want you to think about here today while we're going through this Halloween edition. We want pointy hats, you know, (laughs) big pointy noses, maybe a ward or two, green faces, (laughs) huddled around a cauldron in the forest, maybe looking for an eye of newt. Uh, That's that's what we want to be talking about here. Okay, excellent. (laughs) 
We're not going to be talking about any of those good witches. You know, we're not going to talk about Glenda, yeah. the good witch of the North. <laughs> Nothing like that. So get those images out of your yes. mind and think pointy hats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Salem witch trials, they, they uh, started in 1692. So a ways back in time here in the New World, uh, the United States here, and specifically in New England. Um, and they ran through 1693. So certainly famous, and they should be famous for the ridiculousness and hysteria that went on, but a relatively short amount of time, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in and around Salem. But the, the anti-witch hysteria, you know, it really has its roots back in Europe in the mid-1400s, which makes sense because many of the folks or all of the folks that came over to New England here in the New World came over from Europe. So, you know, they would have been exposed through teachings, et cetera, of, uh, you know, this hysteria that took place in the 1400s. Wow. And I would imagine that many of these people, uh, amongst other things, were hoping to leave things like that behind. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not all of them, though, which we'll talk about. Right, right, right. <laughs> Wishful thinking. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, back in this time frame, in the 1400s, um, many of the folks that were accused of being witches actually confessed. Um, but we'll talk about that a couple of times in this episode, that, you know, they may have confessed while they were being tortured or they may have confessed to save their lives in one other, in other ways. Uh-huh. So... You know, don't don't just go by all these confessionals that these folks were really witches, you know, was my takeaway. Right, right, right. And back in this time frame, in the 1400s, there were two very well-respected German gentlemen that published a book called, uh, and I, I'll probably mispronounce this, but it was called Malleus Malficarum, which I read loosely translates into, get this, Bill, Hammer of Witches. <laughs> <laughs> Hammer of Witches. All right. So you probably don't want to be on the receiving end of the Hammer of Witches. Yeah, let's just say these guys weren't pro-witch. Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> doubt about it, you know. Well, I have to say, other than uh, a little tongue-in-cheek humor, I'm not pro-witch either. Oh, I'm not either. Yeah. But, you know, this is, uh, you'll, you'll, wait till you hear these numbers, though. So, you know, our friends at History.com, they report that during, uh, you know, about 100 years when, when this, after this book was first published, it outsold all books across Europe except for the Bible. Wow. So pretty popular. Yeah. You know, and basically it was a guidebook uh, that gave you instructions on how to flush out and hunt down witches. And uh, so it probably is the foundation of the anti-witch hysteria at this time across Europe. Wow. And get this. So between 1500 and 1660, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Bill. How many witches, do you, suspected witches, do you think were put to death across Europe? In Europe in that time frame? Yep. 160 years. 160-year period I'm just going to go out there for whatever reason. I'm going to say 15,000. All right. That's a really good guess. 80,000. Holy smoke. Unbelievable, right? Eight. I mean, that, that, when you see that number, I was like, 80,000 people. Wow. 
Yeah. And that that was after the release of this book? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So the book was published in the mid-1400s. Yeah. And this is from 1500 to 1660. So after everybody got their hands on a copy and got to read it and get familiar with it. Yeah, the accusations started to fly, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, she looks like a witch. She smells like a witch. (laughs) She must be a witch. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then no surprise, perhaps no surprise, 80% of the... uh, the folks that were put to death were women. Uh-huh. Um, but so some were men, and we'll even talk about later on that in the New World, uh, a few of them were dogs, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, literally dogs. And, um, you know, they were put to death generally because they were thought to be working with the devil. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's clearly everything is around uh, being too close to Satan. Right. Now, you know, uh, as we're getting going here, There's no doubt that there are nefarious individuals out there that are in alliance with satanic forces uh, back then and this very day. Uh, The thought that, you know, none of this stuff goes on anywhere uh, is bogus in nature. Uh, Most of them are acting behind the scenes. And in this day and age, I mean, nobody is hunting down a witch no, and no. as a matter of fact, you know, when I see some of these uh, uh, bumper stickers, we've all seen them with various religious and cultic symbols on them saying, you know, live in harmony. Today, it's almost an accepted practice. Uh, uh, those who are a witch, you know, like don't discriminate against your local witch. A very bizarre turn of events uh, uh, in a matter of a uh, few hundred years. Oh, no doubt about it. And uh, I'm glad you're pointing that out because I'm definitely, you know, throughout this having a few laughs about this. But one, you know, people were put to death in heinous ways, you know, with with ridiculous trials. So a lot of innocent people died. Yeah. But I'm certainly uh, not a big fan of witches and um, certainly believe that some of the folks around were genuine you know, which is working with the devil, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah. anybody who is in an alliance with Satan, Lucifer, uh, the demons of hell, wants to operate undercover. Uh, Satan doesn't just walk out uh, as the cartoons depict, uh, having a, a red body, a long tail, cloven hooves. And uh, reaching out to you, telling you, I'm going to get you and I'm going to drag you down to hell. He's (laughs) a subtle little runt operating in the background, letting his minions work their way into the lives of innocent people and trying to turn them around in the end to take them with him. So (laughs) the notion that. Uh, this is some type of uh, game or a good time was had by all is not true. You may have a good time now, but the day is coming when those good times end. Yeah, and uh, I, after I get done with, uh, you know, this bit of uh, research around the witch trials and that, Bill, if I forget, remind me to tell you my own witch story. Okay. 
<laughs> going back when I was in university. Wow. So, okay. It's pretty cool. Um, so, so this period where about 80,000 suspected witches were put to death ended around 1660. And then if we move forward about 32 years from the end of that period uh, to 1692 and across the ocean, across the Atlantic Ocean to the area of Salem, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, easy for me to say, um, that's where the, uh, the infamous Salem witch trials began. Yeah. And during this period, this short period in Salem or in Greater Salem, some young girls uh, would would claim to be possessed by the devil, and and they accused several local women of witchcraft. And in many of these cases, the symptoms were reported as kind of uncontrollable movements, involuntary shouting, etc. So these folks and their parents and siblings and that. Uh, thought that they were per- they were possessed and perhaps cursed or hexed by a local witch or someone believed to be a witch. Mm. So pretty crazy, you know, like this was going on um, and you can imagine. And in a couple of examples, you know, like a child would die from these symptoms. And then the parents, you know, although they were mourning, they would want to blame someone for this, and perhaps they should have blamed these people. You know, again, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, they would start to, you know, say, hey, these are, that lady over there that lives two houses down is a witch. And uh, this hysteria just went crazy in the region about who was a witch and who wasn't. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, Kev, uh, uh, I'm in the process of beginning a new book. And I won't tell anybody what it's about, but I'll give you a little hint. The Catholic Church, when being brought in to investigate uh, what they believe is a possessed individual, uh, trying to figure out whether or not an exorcism uh, should be done on the individual, the first thing they do is bring in one or two uh, psychiatrists, preferably agnostic or atheistic, so that their faith doesn't uh, uh, muddy the waters as to what they see and observe in the individual. And they also have the individual examined to see if there's anything medically wrong with them. There are a number of diseases and maladies which can cause such things as you just described to happen in the body. But of course, way back then, the people were unaware of such conditions and saw somebody writhing on the floor, perhaps in an epileptic fit uh, or screaming out uh, curse words and foul things. They thought it had to be a possession. Why else would somebody do such a thing? Right. It's an easy explanation for the unknown. Right. Exactly. Remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. <laughs> the devil made me do it. No, and they they actually uh, they talk about in some of the some of the readings that I went through, they talk about the fact that there was uh, now believed to be a fungus on some of the crops back then, like on some of the wheat that everyone would eat, that uh, this fungus could cause symptoms like this. 
So as far as I know, no one has tied it together, but it's certainly plausible that the fungus created some of this problem. Well, it's incredible. Um, so it's worth a step back, though. Oh, so first off, so this hysteria that was going on around Greater Salem led to the formation, actually, of a special court, a special legal court, because there were so many trials uh, specifically related to whether someone was a witch or not. Uh, they had to form this special court. And after the court was formed, they executed about 20 witches. So, you know, they right away, they were having these trials probably every day or once a week or whatever. And soon thereafter, 20 people were dead for being a witch. Wow. And uh, I think it's worth a step back to look at the overall situation in New England uh, at this point in time to see, you know, what, how could this have happened? Like, how could this craziness have happened, you know, or hysteria? Yeah. And, of course, this was a Puritan area. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, I, I went and I looked at, uh, you know, uh, Puritan. And if you look at, of course, I've, I've heard of it and studied it way back when. But if you look at Merriam-Webster's definition of a Puritan, so it's a, a, you know, a Protestant group from the 16th and 17th century uh, that was opposed to, you know, some of the teachings of the Church of England. Right. So they were they were like a lot of the folks that came to the New World, um, didn't like what was going on in Europe and in this case, England, and came over to uh, New England, you know, the uh, northeastern part of the United States. Yeah. And then the, the second definition is one who practices or preaches a purer moral code than than that which prevails. So kind of, you know, they believe they're purer and stricter than everything around them. So I think if you look at that, then you start to think, okay, this might have had something to do with it, right? As they're sitting there um, being purer than everyone else, they're not, it's not entirely a Puritan region of the New World. You know, they have their uh, groups in neighborhoods, and maybe the neighborhood next door is not Puritan. So, you know, they're thinking of themselves as being better and more pure and more holy. And then when they see, you know, this is based on my take of everything I read about this, when they see people that I would call on the edge of the society, maybe the edge of their society, too, their Puritan society. So they're not quite outcasts, but maybe they're not quite as pure as some folks think they should be. Um, they might have been accused of witches. You yeah. know? And some of them may, may have been witches. Some of them may have had mental illness. You know, some of them, it seems, you know, are kind of elderly women, you know, so maybe they were just behaving a little weird, like, you know, happens sometimes. Right. Um, but but I, I do think my take is, after doing the research on this, that some of them are, you know, just folks that were on the edge of their society. And then when one of these young ladies would get sick, They'd say, oh, I walked through so-and-so's yard yesterday before I was sick, and now I'm sick, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Kinda, you know, it just kind of feels that way. Yeah, I, I had heard uh, at some point in time that it even got to the point where people, knowing that if, you know, Mary was accused of being a witch and hung— I could take over her land, which would be a very out, uh, valuable asset to me going forward into the future with whatever I was doing. 
So there were nefarious individuals involved in this too, weren't there? No doubt about it. Yeah. You know, and and um, you know, somewhere there was an inheritance that they could get, and it's you know, like you said, and then it's like, well, if they weren't in line in front of me, then I would get this. You know, so they're a witch. Yeah, you know? follow the money. It's the same yeah, story. Exactly. <laughs> and then you know, when you look at this, this was interesting. When I looked a little bit harder at the, and again, this comes from our friends at History dot com. When I looked at the Puritan beliefs that were prevailing in New England culture then, uh, it's really interesting. So they believed that women were inherently more sinful and more susceptible to uh, being possessed by the devil than men. Um, And then therefore, and this included Puritan women believe this, so Puritan women actively attempted to thwart attempts by the devil to overtake them and their souls. And, um, you know, they believed, although they believed that men and women were equal in the eyes of God, that they were not equal in the eyes of the devil. Huh. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Because that also, you know, may contribute to some of these women that came forward and confessed that they were witches. Wow. You know, so like some of these things I read about, for example, if someone did something wrong, and I mean, you know, maybe minorly wrong, like they yelled at someone or cursed at someone, they would say, oh, you know, the devil got the best of me. But if you said that in a Puritan society, you know, people might say, oh, that's because you're a witch, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Where, you know, we might say that today in society and people would never make the jump like, oh, you're possessed, you know. It's it's more of an expression, right? Right, right. And also, you know, uh, when we talk about the wiles and trickery of uh, the devil, uh, these types of things generally don't happen um, quickly. It's more or less uh, a process that generally begins with uh, what I might call oppression, and opening up of oneself into things that, uh, shall we say, should not be looked into. Doors yeah, that should those, not keep be. Keep those doors closed. Yeah, like yeah. messing around with Ouija boards. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, seances. Uh, things that people think are cool or neat or interesting, uh, which later snowballs into something entirely different that they hadn't planned for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Was that you, so, Grandma? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we look at these, you know, these. I, t- I talked about the characteristics of the Puritans and their beliefs and uh, things like that in that period. But also, you know, in this time frame and in this era, area of uh, the New World, you know, it was tough times. It was kind of like the, they were dealing with the after effects of the British war with France. So, you know, things were tough. You know, they were still under British rule back then, and it was tough to get the resources they needed. Um, there was a smallpox ep- epidemic going on, which, you know, we can only imagine how horrible that was. Um, and then you had the Native American tribes. You know, we think of all of the friendliness, especially coming into Thanksgiving here in the United States. But they were they were genuinely afraid of attacks from neighboring Native American tribes. And then they they 
they had apparently in this specific part of New England, they had a long-standing rivalry, the Puritans did, with the more affluent community um, in in a place called Salem Town, which is you know present-day Salem. So you know generally they had a great fear of outsiders. Huh. And then you put all of this fear of uh, the devil and fear of the witch, fear of witches on top of it. And you could see how things could get crazy in a hurry inside their little community. Yeah, it was pretty much like an antisocial behavior on their part, uh, aside from the fact that, you know, they had their belief system and they were guarded about it. But to want to seal yourself off and not entertain anybody else as potentially being a friend or or having any alliances is kind of a, a strange road to go down, you know? Yep, absolutely. So we're we're gonna go back to uh give you some of these uh more give you at least one more scary setting of a witch. Um to uh a a few years um uh prior to the Salem witch trials, but also in New England uh, there were a lot of trials and accu- accusations in and around what we would call Hartford, Connecticut now. So northern Connecticut, northern central Connecticut. And uh, one, uh, one woman there that was, that's written about a lot, her name was Ann Cole. She suddenly became affected and uh, was shaking violently and spouting blasphemy, kind of like you're talking about, Bill. Yeah. And, and, and Cole blamed her bewitchment on her neighbor. Uh, her and her neighbor's name was Rebecca Greensmith. I mean, sounds a little bit like a witch too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Poor Rebecca. <laughs> Just kidding. Just yeah, kidding. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, and Rebecca was described by one of the townspeople as a lewd, ignorant, considerably aged woman. So you see what I mean of like being on the edge. Yeah. Of society, you know, I mean, she's considerably aged. Like, really, like that's something you're guilty of, right? Um, and and Kev, you know, if you talk about lewdness, uh, I don't even want to get into that today. But if you consider the behavior of a huge part of society today, talk yep. about lewdness. If lewdness was a parameter uh, for being condemned as a witch, well. You know, I could pick 50 percent of the people I have compa- uh, contact with and say, you're lewd and you're a witch. Yep. You know, very bizarre. Yep. So this started a, a cycle there in in and around Hartford, especially around this particular case where everybody started blaming others. And in, in, in fact, like there was another woman that was on trial to be for being a witch and her husband came out and then accused Rebecca Greensmith of being a witch. Probably to save his wife, right? You know, not, you know, not necessarily that he knew anything about Rebecca Greensmith, but it's kind of like maybe there's just one witch, and maybe my wife isn't a witch. Um, but this is where we get into some of the creepy stuff. So when this trial of Rebecca Greensmith was going on, um, you know, some of the the damning testimony came from herself. So she admitted having familiarity with the devil. And said that at Christmas, they would have a merry meeting to form a covenant. And uh, she even implicated her husband and said that she had met in the woods with seven other witches, including her husband. Wow. So there we get back to, you know, um, being out in the woods. And listen to this. So neighbors testified that they saw her and uh, some of these other folks 
dancing with other women in the woods and cooking mysterious concoctions in black kettles. Wow. And this and this was admitted to by her, not under torture or any. She just ad- admitted to this. I mean, they you read about this that it's like in uh, in the trial. She said this. Yeah. Stuff. So you know, it's testimony. So um, it, it's it's interesting. Like, who knows if she was trying to save something? But this one sounds like you know she uh, she did something wrong. You know, so so we got that creepy stuff. But now we get into uh, a little bit of the the weirder, not weirder, weirder in a in a scary way, but weirder in a ridiculous way. And this brings me back to one of my fame, one of my most favorite Monty Python and Holy Grail skits. Right. Remember when they were accusing the woman of being a witch? I I do. I do, do, I do uh, have some <laughs> memories of that. Okay. Well, basically, you know, they're trying to figure out how they can prove that she's a witch. And um, they, they put her on this scale to see how much she weighs over the water. And it's kind of like if she sinks in the water, then she's not a witch. Uh, and she's innocent, but of course she drowns, right? You know, so it's kind of ridiculous. Like if you float, you're a witch. If you sink, you're innocent. But if you sink, you drown and you're dead anyway. So great. Um, so in in Connecticut here, get this: they reported that at least two of the suspects were subjected to what they call the swimming test, in which their hands and feet are tied together and they're thrown into the water to test the theory that witches are unable to sink. Huh. Oh, my God. The theory. If, if you don't mind, we're going to bind you hand and foot uh, to test out our theorem on witches' ability to float or sink. Please, have a seat over here if you don't mind, and let us get about our test. <laughs> and if, if you sink, of course, you drown. Yes, you know, you're but, innocent, but you're dead. Yes, yes. So, I, I hope you this, don't mind. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's uh, I guess that was a, a common, common uh, way or a somewhat common way, even in Europe, I'm sure. And that's the root of the uh, Monty Python sketch, um, which I thought at the time when I saw it was just ridiculous. But, you know, maybe it's based on what actually happened in Europe. And they brought that tradition over to uh over to uh, the new world. Boy, oh boy. So, you know, a few years went by after the Salem witch trials, and of course we got some new folks in political office, and sanity basically prevailed. You know, they started to say, come on now, stop with all of this witch stuff. Um, There's certainly other criminals going on in town. We don't have to tie up the courts and build special courts just so you guys can blame your neighbor for mysterious things that are happening. So, you know, although this was really hysteria uh, going on in New England and a lot of people were put to put to death, uh, sanity did prevail shortly thereafter. And to this day, there are folks uh, fighting at various times to exonerate the names of their relatives who were accused to be accused of being witches in that time. Now, most of them, as I read, were were uh, exonerated since then through various Acts of Congress, et cetera, you know, whether it's local or national, they were their record was expunged from uh, being a witch. Wow. Just incredible, mm. man. And, you know, that, so let me I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. That woman's testimony, uh, oh, women yeah, creepy, dancing right? around in the woods around, uh, you know, cauldrons or pots, you know, 
there's a lot of strangeness involved with that. And the roots of most of this stuff goes back to Satanism. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not uh, it's not anything that you really want to get involved in unless you no, I'm not messing with it. So that that leads me to my story from uh, my university days. And I, I don't know if I ever told you this, Bill, but uh, it's it's a fun. It, you know, I usually tell it in a funny way. And usually my better half, my wife, tells the story to people we know. So uh, before I met her in college. I wasn't dating anyone, and uh, I met this uh, beautiful blonde woman, and she was tall, long blonde hair, you know, just gorgeous, and and I was kind of shy, so I would see her around, and one day, one day, one evening, you know, after studying, I asked her if she wanted to get a cup of coffee or something, and we did. We got a cup of coffee in the union building, and she invited me to come back to her room on campus. And I was like, okay, sure. And we're walking across campus, and we go into her room, and she has a uh, a pentagraph on the floor in the middle of a room, painted on the floor with, you know, burnt-down candles around the uh, corners of the star. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you still went in. Oh, no, 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 uh. no. The door opened, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, so... Uh, what exactly is that? You know, <laughs> probably not as calmly as I just said it. Yeah, yeah. And she said, "Oh, well, well, I'm a witch." And I was like, "Excuse me?" And she said, "A witch." And she said, "You know, not with the pointy hat and that, but you know, I'm a good witch." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, oh, okay." Right. I was like, yeah. "You know, I, I just remembered. I, you know, what I was trying to get out of there in a graceful way." Because I didn't want her to like put a spell on me or something like that, or I didn't want to turn into a frog. <laughs> Maybe the next room there was a cauldron with boiling frogs in it. <laughs> but it's that's absolutely true, and uh, I gracefully got out of there, and uh, I would see her around campus, you know, for a couple of years later. And I'd always be like, holy cow, because that was my first experience, you know, really running into someone that was a witch. And she, you know, again, she was like, I'm a good witch, you know. Yeah. And she probably looked a little bit like Glenda, the good witch of the North from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You know, this (laughs) is part of the deception that I was talking about before, uh, how Satan lures people in in stages. Now, mind you, he doesn't care how he gets you as long as he gets you. And, uh, you know, some people think, well, I'm not too bad, but she's really bad. You know, right. this idea of good witchcraft and bad witchcraft uh, and magic and black magic, you know, they in and of themselves are trying to draw the lines in their own spiritual warfare as to being good as opposed to the other one being bad. No doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that is all part of the deception uh, that's involved with uh, Satan and his emissaries on this planet. Boy, Kev, I would have been freaked out uh, <laughs> stepping into that doorway. Yeah, but you could see what I mean, though, right? You didn't want to, like, be too judgy because, hell, like, 
I'm thinking, I never met a witch before. Maybe she's going to turn me into a frog. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't staying. Let's put it that way. But, you know, I didn't want to get her upset. Well, folks, I told you in the beginning when we started this podcast that my brother and I are two different people. And I have to tell you, Kev, I'm in that doorway. I got something to say about that. <laughs> I'm telling you, bro. In no uncertain terms, boy, she would have been read the riot act on the doorstep, and then I would have slammed the door and walked away. Jeez, holy! Hey, man. by the way, for our listeners out there, when you know that's that's it for me uh, for this week. But the, for our listeners out there, I I also tried to do some research into the whole pointy hat thing. And the broom riding, and uh, it's pretty. There's pretty interesting stuff out there. You know, I couldn't put it all into our podcast because some of it's uh, not appropriate for the family audience. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's also worth look worth looking at sometime if you're curious. Oh, wow. kind of strange stuff. Well, that was really bizarre cool. and excellent, Kev. <laughs> you know, th- you know. Sometimes we need to open our eyes up. You know, they say uh, that if we don't learn from the past, it's bound to repeat itself. And there's a certain... Absolutely. You know, there's a certain amount of truth to that. Uh, All right, so let's have some werewolf talk. Yep, okay. Now, listen, folks. Batten down the hatches because it's going to get really weird here really quick. This uh, account was told to me by Robert Etheridge, a resident of the state of Arkansas. And this is what Robert had to say about this rather chilling sighting in June of 2016. So we're only talking a few years ago. It was on June 13th of 2016 that I was making my way through the forest, doing a little small game hunting. I was toting my 12-gauge side-by-side and hoping to run across some rabbits. But more or less, I was just out for a stroll, as is my custom. Now, I must tell you as I begin that I spend hundreds, if not thousands, of hours in the woods. I'm very familiar with everything and anything that makes this woods its home, which is to say, until this day. I was taking the high line, walking along the edge of a heavily wooded ravine, being about 50 foot below the ridgeline. The ravine itself descended some 200 feet or so below me and was so heavily covered in trees and low brush that from my position, it would seem virtually impassable for man or beast. I was myself following a game trail that I knew would bring me out on the other side, having been through here before. I didn't know then, but I do know, I do know now, why suddenly I had the most unnerving feeling that I was being watched. We have all had this feeling, but this was different. I felt in such a way that imminent danger was approaching me or nearby. That's the only way that I can describe it to you. As I began to look around trying to shake the feeling that had come over me, I suddenly noticed a patch of bright white below me in the undergrowth, which was as white as a bleached undershirt. Typically, 
When I'm in the woods, white color is usually acquainted with a deer's tail or the breast of a hawk or an owl. But this was much brighter and too large to be any of them. As I was staring at this white color in the brush, which was easily 200 feet or more away from me down within the side of the ravine, I was now able to make out a figure that I previously didn't realize was holding the white object. Its coloration somewhat blending in with the surrounding bushes. Keep in mind that at this point, what I was seeing was maybe an inch tall at the distance I was looking and with the naked eye. I set my shotgun down momentarily and pulling out my field glasses zeroed in on what was before me. I now had in focus a tall, wolf-like creature that was holding in its clutches a pure white cat, and I could see it clearly. The creature was standing in brush up to its waist, being surrounded on both sides and at its back with scrubby trees, and it was staring directly at me as I was at it. Its head was that of a wolf or an Alaskan husky dog. The snout was long and tapered, and I could actually see its fang teeth protruding from its jowls. It had triangular-shaped ears that were pointing straight up, and long but muscular arms were hanging from its sides. This wolf man was standing perfectly still on two legs, just like a human being, and it was clutching a white, apparently feral cat in its hands. I could make out what were long finger-like appendages, which were tipped with black hawk-like talons, with the cat's fur being bloodied in a number of spots. This creature was staring directly at me, and I almost couldn't stand looking at it through the lenses. It was almost upsetting me in some dark and foreboding kind of way. The upper torso, which I could plainly see, was lean and muscular, being covered with a sparse amount of hair or fur, through which I could see its skin. While the head was completely covered in fur like that of a wolf or any type of canine, based on the surrounding bush's height throughout the ravine, I estimated its height at being some seven feet. And this thing did not so much as blink for ten minutes or more. Suddenly, the cat wriggled violently, as if with one final gasp it was trying to free itself from the monster's claws. As I watched the beast tighten its grasp and the struggle was over. I took my shotgun in hand and backtracked out of the woods, the entire time feeling as though I was being followed by this beast. Having now seen this wolf man, I have never returned into this area of the woods again. My feelings being now that this creature could have torn me limb from limb had it been given the chance to do so. And the feeling that I had while we were staring each other down was that of pure and unadulterated evil. This thing was a demon from the pit of hell. What do you think of that, Kevin? Whoa. 
That's an appropriate Halloween story. Yeah, I mean, you know. Super creepy with the the snout and the talons, you know. Yeah, you know. Now, a lot of people have seen something that this man described as a wolf man. uh, And they refer to this creature as the dog man. Right. Uh, the uh, the descriptions of it are almost always pretty much spot on with what this guy said. Uh, even the Rougarou, which I believe is like all in the same category, the Rougarou sightings are different than a Bigfoot uh, in that they, they talk about something tall and lanky and vicious and dog-like and... The, the extended snout, the teeth, you know, very different. It's not, it has nothing to do with a Bigfoot. This is a, a... No, I agree. I agree. And, and you know, for our new listeners, we have episodes out there on Dogman and Rougarou. So, yeah, if you haven't listened to them, check them out. Yeah, but, you know, this guy in the woods alone, I mean, you know... Man, I would... Could you imagine, like, seeing that, you know, like you talked about how you'd behave differently than me when I ran into the witch on campus, right? How about seeing this? He says it's, you know, far enough away that it appears to be, what do you say, an inch tall or something like that? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at something in in a a fair amount of distance, he's, you know, it looked tiny. Kind of like, you know, the tip of your thumb or whatever in the distance. But then you're going to look a little bit more at this thing? Holy cow. Yeah, well, I mean. Like, how does this story end that's positive? It can't end. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're going to die. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Imagine. I mean, even with the shotgun. You know, side-by-side shotgun? No, 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 no. That's not the weapon of choice. <laughs> Oh, my goodness, man. You know, and, you know, I can only imagine looking through these uh, binoculars and kind of honing your focus in uh, on this thing. And now you're like, what the? Oh, man, I I can't imagine now, that. That to me, you know, OK, so Bigfoot, again, like one of our like we mentioned, uh, one of the witnesses said, um in one of our recent podcasts where, you know, he's frightened, but he's, he, it's more strange that he's seeing what he, what he has been told his whole life is not possible to see. So, but that's different. You know, when you see like something that looks like dog man or a wolf man, a werewolf, whatever you want to say, and it's got a dead animal in its hands. I mean, holy cow. Yeah. Like, I am out of there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I don't don't know, man. I don't spend much time looking around. I'll tell you right now. I grab my side by side and I start legging it out of there. Exactly. Uh, Rapid transit if you catch my drift. Exactly. That might be like a uh, Swiss Army knife equivalent when you're dealing with that creature. I don't know. I'm not going to stab a a bear with a Swiss Swiss Army knife. And I'm not going to take on a... A wolf man with a side-by-side shotgun. No. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, uh, 
That's... Maybe like a Gatlin gun in the back of a covered wagon or something. Yeah, just like until you see the pieces flying off, you know. Exactly. Maybe. And then it could be like the Terminator movie where the hand started to move. Well, yeah, then it's kind of like if it's true werewolf, don't you need like a silver bullet or something? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know. <laughs> good, good story, though. That's uh, that's good. Uh, really good for Halloween. I like it. Yeah, creepy, creepy stuff. So, my brother, what do we have from our listeners today? Anything good? Cool. We got some good, uh, good listener mail. So let's jump into it. Okay. We have from Tino in Costa Rica. So down south of us. Okay. I love what you men are doing. Don't change anything. Your uniqueness makes you stand alone. Have bodies been found? And if not, why do you think that is? Regards, Tino. Wow. Well, Kev, you know, I, I mean, you know a little bit about some of uh, the accounts that I have about bodies. But if you knew nothing about that and were just coming into this cold, having a belief in Bigfoot, uh, would you side with the fact that in your mind bodies must have been found and perhaps we don't know know about them? Yeah, it's a good question. I could go either way because, you know, if I say no bodies have been found – you know, my explanation would be, well, there's not that many of them, you know, and they're in really rural places. Right. You know, and they're these fur-covered animals, you know, like how often do you come across a body, you know, and like we talked about in one of our previous podcasts, if you came across a big femur bone, you know, and you were on a hike in the middle of, say, the Pacific Northwest, are you going to pick up that bone and carry it with you for a day or two back? Uh, I'm not picking it up. Right. And, you know, these days I might take a picture of it with my phone for sure. Right. Yeah, and but, you're, you're going to pay some lab, locate and find and pay some laboratory to check this bone out because you're suspicious that it belongs to a Bigfoot? No, yeah, it's of course you know. you, that ridiculous amount of money, and uh, I, I don't think anybody's going to be bothered with anything like that. No, and and oh by the way, like if you're hiking around in uh, rural places and you're taking the time to hang your food up in a tree and stuff, are you going to be carrying bones around with you? Like no. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, and you know, in some of the accounts in my books, uh, if you believe it, there have been bodies found. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if I have a number of accounts, how many more are out there? So I don't, I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in the integrity of all of the, the people and organizations around me to believe that everybody's laying things out there for all to see. I just, uh, I, 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 I march to a different drum. Very yep. bizarre. Yep. Well, thanks to Tino for contacting us. And, brother, that was a good question. And it's really interesting, again, Kev, to see the uh, scope of people that are listening to this podcast. Absolutely. Cost- yeah, we're going we're gonna to go around the world with some of these. Um, this next one, we're going to go to uh, uh, rural central U.S. here um, from Matt in Michigan. And um, Matt says, you're spot on with the Upper Upper Peninsula story in volume one. There have been creatures spotted by the quote unquote uppers, as they're known, for 100 years in Michigan. 
great show and keep up the investigations, Matt. And, you know, for those international folks, you know, when you look at a map of Michigan here in the United States, the upper part of the of the state is called the Upper Peninsula. And it's it's I've actually never been there, but it's it's rumored to be one of the most beautiful parts of the United States. And um, uh, it's also very rural. And we were talking about like Dogman earlier. Some of the most famous Dogman sightings are in the Upper Peninsula. Incredible, you know. And uh, we had talked, Kev, that I I spoke to this woman uh, probably uh, better than a month ago. Uh, who actually her and her family had a number of large tracts of land. In that area. And uh, my understanding was in talking with her that uh, these were not houses they lived in on a regular basis. They would go up there to get lost in the woods and, you know, whatever, take a week or two off. And she had an encounter in that area uh, where a creature, a Bigfoot creature, was running along what she described like the woods in a swamp keeping track with her in her geo-tracker truck. Mm. Uh, 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 You know, so that being true, and I have no reason to doubt these people, uh, but these creatures are just there, still there. Yeah. You know, they have no reason to leave. And it is, you know, like you said, it's, it's certainly a rural place, and my understanding is, too, that most of the people up there live there part time. You know, it's kind of a getaway kind of place, a place of a lot of lakefront cabins and things like that, where families come up through generations for the summertime, for example. Yeah. And, you know, in the uh, chapter one of volume one, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, uh, the individual that was going there to meet an army buddy, uh, Marine buddy, I believe, uh, his family had been there living for, you know, probably a hundred years. And when they went up there, uh, these people built their own little sawmill. Uh, Their house had been constructed out of lumber they created from the forest. Uh, And the great-grandfather, I forget the whole deal now, was actually creating lumber for other people in the area that they could build with. Uh, There was mining going on up there during World War II. Uh, apparently, there was a significant uh, uh, copper ore deposit, if I'm, uh, I'm not mistaken, and maybe some other metals available up there. So there were some people there, but it was certainly not uh, a, a place, you know, full of shopping centers and houses, you know, by yeah, no pretty means. pretty rural place. Yeah. Pretty rural place. Wow, that's amazing. All right. We're going to go <laughs> all the way to the Philippines hmm. uh, and Hazel. In the Philippines writes in, my entire family is tuned into your podcast, and we love it. My cousin Rodrigo started the ball rolling when he found you on Stitcher. What are the origins of the Bigfoot monster? Love, Hazel. Wow. Kev, what do you think the origins of the Bigfoot monster are? Boy, you know, I I, I tend to think that it's, uh, you know, an ape-like creature that just hasn't been discovered yet. And it has uh, a lot of human characteristics, you know, and um, we talked of, uh, you know, in one of the podcasts, one of the earlier podcasts of the theory, you know, that it came over 
across the uh, Bering Strait Bridge, land bridge that was present, you know, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and, um, and you know, has evolved uh, in the rural parts of North America, and it could be related to Yeti over in Asia, mm -hmm. you know, for the ones that didn't come across the bridge. So, you know, I tend to think it's a creature that we just haven't discovered yet. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and again, getting back to bodies being found, uh, when we say we haven't discovered it, obviously there are thousands of people who have made the discovery. Oh, I've seen it. Absolutely. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the point being, though, who believes them? You know, that's, that's the hurdle. You know, the acceptance of this thing uh, being legitimate and opening it up uh, to... Uh, really legitimate uh, search, uh, evidence finding, and uh, recognition. That's yeah. And my my own theory, Bill, is that I think you know. Of course, there's a lot of hoaxers out there for sure, no doubt. And I think when other creatures were discovered and documented for the first time, um, take like you you've talked about gorillas, for example, when they were first discovered. I don't know that there were a lot of hoaxers out there pretending to be gorillas, you know. So so it was easier to believe. That the creature existed because there weren't documented cases of, you know, fraud right. related to pretending to be the creature. Right, so right. I think it makes it a lot harder when you have so many hoaxers out there, um, you know, pretending to have seen or pretending to have uh, been, perhaps, you know, a, right. a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. Right. And that's the thing. When you take these, uh, write these stories, people call me all the time. I was telling you about that fella I spent a couple of hours with the other night. I mean, just incredible. Uh, if it's not true, it was a great story. And uh, but you, you just can't. You no, just but can't. then we see people that are, you know, uh, senators and lawmakers and law enforcement personnel. Right. Very credible witnesses that have a lot to lose. Um, you know, you go back to the Bauman encounter, you know, you have uh, President Theodore Roosevelt writing about it in a book that's basically, uh, you know, a factual encyclopedia. Yeah. And he's including that account. So it's not all, you know, goofiness by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Right. And, you know, again, you don't hear anybody talking in high places about Roosevelt's Bauman encounter. Nobody even mentions it. No. I mean, that's something you just kind of learn about when you're in the Bigfoot business. If I hadn't been involved in uh, uh, the Bigfoot or with the Bigfoot creature in the way that I am, I would have never known about the Bauman account in Teddy Roosevelt's The Wilderness Hunter. And I mean, I right. don't mean to keep singling that out. I, I think it's thrilling. I think it's great. But there's so, so much more. Yep. Cool. Well, All right. Our last uh, note came in from Stephen in Northern California, which, uh, of course, you know, my comment is that's definitely a hotbed of Bigfoot. So great show. I think I know the area where the gold digger spotted that female Sasquatch. Uh -huh. <laughs> and when I have time, I'm going to check it out for myself. Wish me luck. Yeah, there you go, brother. 
Good luck, Stephen. And then he, he goes on to say, I regularly hunt in this area and have heard many things, including branches being broken and something in the woods running in a deliberately noisy fashion on a couple of occasions. I believe it was Bigfoot, but I have seen nothing. Why do you think they do these types of things? Thanks for the time the two of you spend putting this show together. Stephen, well, well, you're welcome, Stephen. Thanks for the kind note. Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, you know, you throw stuff out there, and here this guy kind of recognizes from the little bit of info that I think I know what they're talking about. And he says that when <laughs> he's out hunting, he hears these what he calls deliberately noisy actions uh, in the woods. And it's really, it's interesting, right? Because what other animals are deliberately noisy? I mean, to me, you're creating noise because you want to be heard. Yeah. I mean, it's not. But, you know, by the same token, if you weigh 600 pounds and you're eight feet tall and you're running around, you're going to make some noise. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be clear about that. Well, yeah, I guess so. You know, (laughs) out of my way. Yeah, but really uh, neat. I kind of, I kind of think that uh, when people are hearing things like that, either he's standing there, or, and this thing just went on a tear chasing after something for dinner. Uh, that's one thing. But if it was, if it wasn't chasing anything for food, and just barreling its way, thrashing through the brush. Why else would you want to make noise unless you wanted to be heard, or maybe to scare somebody? Yeah, no doubt about it. It's like an intimidation yeah. tactic, you know? Yeah, no no doubt about it. Wow. And I also think they're curious, you know, so they could be curious out there. Not why they're making noise, but why they're following him along, you know, and maybe shadowing him like we hear in some of these accounts. Yeah, this, um, there's no doubt about it. And why not? That would almost be like natural behavior. Absolutely. Uh, especially if they weren't particularly fearful of you. Like a lot of animals might see you and kind of start trotting the other way or just walk off. But if they have no reason to really be afraid, and they are, in fact, a little bit inquisitive, they might hang around and look at you, you know, see what you're up to. Yeah, and he said, you know, it was a female Sasquatch, you know, maybe she was attracted to you, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh la la, mon ami. I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) All right then, brother. Well, that was an excellent show of shows. And it's a good good one. Once again, uh, my brother, wish you and yours a very happy Halloween. Uh, Have some fun with the kids. Go out, collect some candy, laugh a little, love a little. But remember, if you're heading into the woods on Halloween, always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>